so dramatic when you call You're so dramatic on the All in the Welcome back to VMP Anthology, the story of Ghostly International. I'm Vivian Host, and in this third episode of the series, Harmonic Terrain, we're going to be talking about two albums that are very interested in ambience, texture, and landscape, both external and internal. Nonetheless, these two records couldn't be more different sounding. The first one, This Is For The White In Your Eyes, is the 2009 Ghostly debut from Choir of Young Believers, the amorphous project of Copenhagen's Janis Joya Macrigianis. Janis's tracks begin as skeletal guitar and piano compositions and unfurl into entire sound worlds anchored by his shimmering vocals. The record conjures intimacy and grandeur all at once. While Choir of Young Believers sits somewhere in the realm of orchestral pop, the next record you're gonna be unpacking is far more abstract and totally instrumental. It's Ancient Future, a collaboration between Japan's Ryuchi Sakamoto, a pioneer of electronic music and modern classical, and Christopher Willits, the immersive ambient producer and guitar maestro who has been a core ghostly artist since the early 2000s. This six-part song cycle is obsessed with melody and texture, while encouraging a dive into tranquility and introspection. But you don't need to hear it all from me. I've got Christopher Willits on the line from San Francisco to tell you about working with Sakamoto, plus Ghostly International's Sam Valenti, Molly Smith, and Jeff Owens chime in. And we've even got some thoughts from visual artist and frequent Ghostly collaborator Will Calcutt, who's the one who found Choir of Young Believers on MySpace in the first place. Will Calcutt, who I just mentioned, is a visual artist that has been working with Ghostly since 2001. He's done over two dozen covers for the label. Not only does he have a strong visual aesthetic, but he has a strong auditory one as well. We sat down at his house in Los Angeles to talk about what enthralled him about choir's music and why he decided to bring it to Sam Valenti. I remember hearing the Burn the Flag EP by Choir of Young Believers, I believe on MySpace of all, you know, if everyone recalls that MySpace had music, which they recently deleted all of it. Um, my criteria for recommending a band or an artist to Ghostly for to sign or to investigate more is just that you only find you're only able to find a couple songs, and they're very haunting, and that you you kind of demand more. You're like there there needs to be more of this. Like it's it's a it seems criminal that there isn't. You know, and Choir Young Believers is like that close the same way. I remember I heard a song and I was like, there's only three or four songs available by this band. And I was like, why Why aren't there five albums of this? I want to keep listening. And so with Choir of Young Believers, uh, it was just that there was this incredible musicianship and a, a sense of space in the music and uh, a delicacy and, uh, but yeah, it somehow it was orchestral. It's, it had all these contradictions um, 
and it was, you know, it's heartbreakingly beautiful. And so uh, I thought it was important that um, we we get involved and maybe maybe see if we can can't do an album or two. You know, Giannis is it's pretty clear he's a true artist and that he's just gonna he's gonna do things on his own terms and they're not gonna necessarily line up with American expectations for like careerism or for oh I need to I need to be on MTV or I need I need this I need that it's like he's a, a real musician and is just deep deeply involved in the music that way Well you just heard from Will Calcutt and now we're going to hear from Sam Valenti who founded Ghostly International in 1999. Sam, we've been talking a little bit about the year 2009 in Ghostly's history, the 10-year mark, and I was wondering how you view this album from Choir of Young Believers in retrospect. The band in this case was modular. Like it could be Giannis and one person, or it could be this like sprawling collective. So it's very architectural, for lack of a better word. I mean, it has like a folk aspect to it, it has an indie aspect to it. It's like very well crafted. And I think we had cut our teeth a little bit with band music. So we were like, we can take chances now. And it was not electronic. So it also felt kind of good to like stray further from the DNA. Um, but it was just also so beautiful. I think the ghostly thing is not just about the making of the music, but it's also like the, the feeling. And there's a sort of celestial quality to it. So it wasn't, it, it was probably the least A&R'd art directed project on our side. The cover was already done. I don't remember us making any edits to like the track listing, but it was a like further reach globally to like work with a project that maybe was not in our usual wheelhouse. It was like a, a maturation of our interest in non-electronic music. One of those releases that could be lost in the ghostly shuffle with like the hype that surrounds electronic music. That's Molly Smith, Ghostly's art manager. She joined the label not too long before This Is For The White In Your Eyes came out in 2009. She not only does design for Ghostly, including covers for Beacon and Patricia, but all the artwork on the label passes through her hands. In fact, she spent a lot of time putting together this VMP anthology box set. As such, she's listened to these releases over and over. So I had to get her take on what makes this choir album such a Ghostly record. Maybe that one, since it is a bit of an outlier, could be passed over, but it's still a really great record that I think makes sense in the rest of our catalog. I feel like Choir is like lush with a lot of dynamics. There are times where Giannis, the singer, and the main person behind Choir can just like make a song feel like you're in like a tiny space with him and then there are times that it gets totally like orchestral and ornate and over the top and just kind of expands outwards. That's the main association I have with his music is just the push and pull between this really over the top beautiful theme song level kind of music to like a very intimate tight arrangement. Yeah I think the the push and pull that Molly mentioned the expansiveness of it felt like a ghostly record to us. Our A&R approach has always been the singular voice out of a group of or style or place, um, which is risky because obviously people want more of the same 
thing. It's like, okay, this label provides this feeling for me, but trying to focus more on feeling instead of genre has been kind of the MO. Is there anything that you see or think of that kind of goes across the whole ghostly catalog? Is there something in the palette that you hear as somebody doing the majority of the A&R or kind of having the final say? For lack of a better word, I think like beautiful or beauty is like a core element. Um, But beauty is very different. Like a a jacking uh, Acid House JTC track to me is beautiful, as is Giannis's voice with like cello. But it's like an emotional texture that is the, the thread. That was a short but beautiful sample of Hollow Talk by Choir of Young Believers. You're listening to the VMP Anthology podcast, The Story of Ghostly International. Next up, some words from Ghostly label director Jeff Owens, who explains the indie success of Choir overseas and what that meant to a relatively young label. Everybody that heard it was, I mean, his voice is pretty incredible and orchestral pop, I, th- I think it was definitely a pretty big turn for us. Sort of doing the thing that you're kind of known for, it's it's always nice to be able to kind of throw that curveball. That record really has done well and still does well. Um, kind of a sleeper hit, I don't know. I mean, it did really, you know, they were they were more active in the, in the European markets, Scandinavia, they were, you know, playing some of the bigger venues. And one of the songs, Hollow Talk, on the record was used in uh, this TV series called The Bridge, which which uh, originated in Denmark. And then uh, it was picked up by the BBC in the UK, and they had their own version of it. And that song is the song that they play at the beginning of the series. And so that just really helped kind of open up a world that, you know, even we don't know about. You know, honestly, it's one of those things that you do need to happen to sort of keep going in a lot of ways. So we've been fortunate enough to have these moments within the 20 years of like defining moments that that help keep everything going forward. If I could take you to a better place. We wanted to include this record for a couple of reasons. One, it's a really beautiful record top to bottom. Uh, Molly brought it up the other day that, you know, listening to it with this kind of hindsight, 10 years, actually sounds really great. It, it holds up really well as a body of work. Um, it also is kind of scarce. There's only like a, a Danish pressing of it. We never actually made a vinyl release of it. So part of it is just the excitement about having this on vinyl finally. And also it just feels like a nice distance to look back on it and appreciate it for what it is.
We're going to switch the palette a little bit and talk about the next record that you should have received in your box set, Willits and Sakamoto, Ancient Future. A six-track, ambient song cycle from two of the best in their craft. In a minute, we're going to hear from Willits himself about how this album came together. But first, here's Sam Valenti to give us a little bit of an overview about Christopher Willits as an artist. Christopher Willits is an interesting sort of self-styled artist that I first heard on a uh, 12K compilation, I think 2003, 2002, called EADGBE. And it was like sort of uh, San Francisco-based experimental. Um, so it com- comes from that sort of tradition of IDM and experimental sound, but also kind of using this sort of humanistic tone, like using the guitar as a bass line and then abstracting it, like cubism or whatever, is that to me appealed to me. So I reached out and... Um, also being an American artist that I didn't think had like a real home. Uh, I also like Christopher Willis because he's a teacher. He was doing like Ableton workshops and with Accelerator, he had a video series where he taught people how to use Ableton and whatnot. So yeah, we've worked with Christopher Willis for a long time and, and just released a new album this year. And and uh, it's another artist who kind of follows his muse and uh, and it's fun to sort of, to just see where his head's at and he's prescient, he's been he just um, launched a surround, immersive sound software and center called Envelop a few years ago in San Francisco, which we're going to be hosting an event at this year. And thinking about music in four dimensions or, or multiple dimensions, and we like artists that are kind of pushing the envelope and forcing us to kind of react. So we've done an, an, an immersive album with him. Um, this is another example of just like him as a traveler connecting with other artists. And obviously Sakamoto is a huge influence on us in his many guises. Um, so the idea of, you know, working with a legend, but also on the terms of an artist that we love so much is a no brainer. Um, so Christopher Willits, where are you right now? I'm actually in San Francisco. Just got back from Salt Lake City. We just opened up Envelop Salt Lake City, our new immersive audio venue out there. And it is such a dream come true on a lot of levels. Um, I want to talk to you about your recent projects at the end of this conversation, but I think for the purposes of people who are maybe not familiar, if we can take it back to the beginning for a minute, where did you grow up and what actually influenced you to start making music of any kind in the first place? I grew up in Kansas City, born in Kansas City, Missouri, raised in Kansas City, Kansas, and very musical family from a young age. My grandfather was a band leader. Um, when he was younger in Oklahoma City and, you know, jazz, big band sounds. And, you know, I loved music, but I really never got into piano. And I think it just had to do with the way I was, you know, the songs I was being taught and kind of the approach, that kind of old school, kind of classical approach. And uh, I was much more interested in listening to Jimi Hendrix, the emotion and, and the love I was hearing inside of that music. Um, and so my dad actually bought me a guitar 
from that moment, you know, it completely changed my life. From then on, I was just nonstop playing guitar and really fully understood at that point that there was a journey that I needed to go on. The path was music. It was expressing love, connection, um, all the things that are sometimes difficult to put into words, allowing those emotions and that connective force of, of all things to come through the music. And that's, uh, that's the journey that I'm still on. So, I mean, obviously when you're playing guitar and you're using pedals, that is electronic, but when did you become aware of what we think of as electronic music production or even electronic music in general? There was a number, there was a number of different kind of exposures to it. There was huge raves going on. We would drive up to Chicago and have these, you know, go to these huge blowout parties and, uh, that was like kind of my first exposure in a lot of ways. And I, I didn't completely, it wasn't, I didn't really feel like it was exactly my culture, but it was inspiring to see the, this assembly of people, um, you know, having these underground parties and whatnot. I think one of the moments actually, the thing that first thing that comes to mind when I think of like, when was I really inspired by um, a different kind of electronic sound? So there was this, uh, there was this late night radio show that was on in, in Kansas City, um, this guy Ray Velasquez, and he would play some of the most amazing tracks. And the way I discovered it was actually because it was after the Grateful Dead hour. So I would, you know, often record these, you know, live Grateful Dead sets. I was way deep into like jazz, uh, Grateful Dead, um, kind of more improvisational music at that time. And then Ray would come on and just play a blast of like Daft Punk, Orbital, Orb, Aphex Twin, a whole other world of music that I hadn't been exposed to. Um, and then from there, you know, I was getting deep in, into Warp Records and, uh, you know, Autechre. I think Tortoise was a huge influence actually around that time as well uh, with TNT and, you know, hearing what they were doing with synths and drum machines, but also integrating that with this kind of post-rock and kind of jazz sound. I mean, I was definitely a guitarist. That's how I view harmony and melody. But the idea of this expansive landscape of production really became clear to me pretty early. Um, and then, you know, that's why I started doing a lot of uh, electronic processing with my guitar. At some point, you ended up in the Bay Area, which is, I think, a place that a lot of people associate you with. You've lived there for a long time and you studied at Mills College, which is really famous uh, in terms of experimental electronic music production. And um, Fred Frith and Paulina Alveros, who are two pioneers of experimental electronics, were there as well. I was wondering what sorts of ideas you were introduced to during that time, or if there was anything that you learned that um, kind of changed your approach yeah, I mean, gosh, there's so much I learned in that time. I, I think some of the things I learned the most were just in practicums, hanging out with Fred Frith, like one-on-one, -on -one, um, Maggie one-on-one, -on -one, Chris Brown one-on-one. -on -one. You know, those times you could really go deep into whatever the practice you were doing specifically, you know, outside of a classroom and they'd, they'd work with you on stuff. And so that time I was so deep into processing systems, into how to create generative patterns with melodic information. So this 
this merge between rhythmic and melodic using these constrained yet indeterminate systems of, of cutting up guitar and folding guitar in different ways. Stuff that I'm still into now, but applying it to more spatialization techniques. And, you know, I just remember jamming with Fred a bunch. You know, he's an incredible guitarist, very textural, atonal, improvisational to a masterful level. He really pushed me to go outside of kind of the, more of the tonal comfort that I, I've always feel. I mean, I still feel, I, I am so in love with harmony. I feel like that just speaks so deeply to our hearts. But Fred, I think, you know, he really pushed me to explore texture more, to explore, you know, the present moment of the expression. And that's just beautiful. And then Maggie, she's incredible. She was, uh, you know, always encouraged me on the production level to take things deeper. And, you know, back then she was already doing tons of spatial compositions. Um, that was definitely influencing as well. And uh, just the whole, really, you know, Outside of any specific person and learning something, I think it was more about just the space to explore what I was doing. You know, I was, uh, I grew up in Kansas City and it's an incredibly musical town. I had um, a number of, you know, incredible experiences out here putting on shows and playing in a couple different bands. And I knew from a young age, it's like, you know, this is home, this is an amazing place and I'm so glad I came from here, but I need to go somewhere else. And it was pretty much a no brainer. I was going to go to San Francisco. So. Um, in the process of looking for schools after studying painting it and, uh, and also new media and film at the at the Kansas City Art Institute. I was like, you know, I, I need, definitely need to make it to the Bay Area. And so applying to Mills was a perfect way to frame that whole journey. And being out there and just allowing ideas to incubate and getting feedback from, you know, Pauline Oliveros. I mean, that was just incredible. I mean, I remember talking with Pauline, you know, we had practicum together as well. And she really, I think more than anyone understood what I was doing. I think Fred was always kind of pushing me to be more atonal and stuff. And um, Maggie was pretty neutral, you know, she just, I think really was inspiring on a production of it, but, but Pauline really heard it. And there was times, some of the very first times I ever played there in the, um, at Mills, they have like this side kind of like recital room it's not like the main room but we would do these thursday night concerts um, we call it thursday night special and i remember pauline came to a few of my first performances you know it's almost like they were dress rehearsals for performances and she was just sitting there just closing her eyes and just having her presence there was such a validation that i was on a path you know i was feeling this i was feeling this um this rich, just deep connection to the harmonies of the music and the ways that it was moving around and these kind of different polyrhythms and stuff. And hearing Pauline then talk to me about her extended delay systems that she used with her accordion um, just was such a validation. You know, she basically was just like, you know, right on, you know, just like, keep exploring, you know? And um, I think that was, that was really important along the way. You know, you get those, those moments where it's like, you know, you feel like you're going on the right path, but maybe 
you're kind of looking for a sign a little bit, you know? It's like, wait, is this, <laughs> how many miles to the next place? Or like, did we actually take the right left turn or whatever? And when you get to work with people like Pauline and Fred and Maggie, it's just, uh, you know, you get, you get validation along the path. And I think that's one of the things that really helped me. It's like, while I was incubating there, so it was just like a little extra kind of push and like, yeah, this is cool, you know, keep continuing on that direction. And, you know, I'm very grateful that I um, was able to stay in the Bay Area and, and keep developing things. You've touched on it a little bit, but tell me a bit about some of the custom things that you've built for modifying sound and some of the processing elements that you're interested in or tinkering with. Wow, there's so much. Um, I mean, I can kind of go chronologically. I mean, when I was younger in high school, I started making foot pedals. So basic distortion circuits and, and things like this to really create more sustain with my guitar. I was never really satisfied with the way different distortion pedals sounded. So essentially it was taking um, like Big Muff kits, that's like a pretty classic uh, distortion pedal, and then playing with those, circuit bending it. I didn't exactly understand electronics at that time, but I could follow a kit and I could hook things up to make it break and do weird, do weird stuff. I was really influenced by Sonic Youth back at that time too, so just really interested in opening up you know, the sonic possibilities of the guitar. So it really started there with like these weird analog circuit experiments and that really filtered into video experiments too. I was building these strange uh, site-specific and multi-channel installations where I would have multiple speakers and TV sets and stuff like that and have this like static and different sounds happening from different areas of the of the room blew a lot of speakers doing that because I didn't exactly understand like what I was doing. Um, but I knew that I had to create a space and it was this, you know, sonic space. It was uh, also audiovisual and it also was uh, very harmonic at the same time. It's interesting to reflect on this. I haven't thought about this stuff for years. Like, thank you for <laughs> asking me these questions. It's like, you're on the path and then it's it's just continuing. I mean, the stuff I'm doing now is completely related to all of that. You know, like um, kind of the stepping stone between then and now is like this middle tier, which happened in at Mills, which is I really got deep into using Max to process my guitar. And I still am way into that, but now I'm doing it more with spatialization techniques. So, you know, ways that I can make different sounds, harmonies, um, textures move in actual three-dimensional spherical space and how that comes into a room. You know, that's that's what Envelop is all about, allowing people to literally be inside of music. And uh, that middle kind of tier, I think, really 
taught me so much about systems. So I would make these generative processing systems. I would play guitar into the systems and then listen to these things, moving the sound and making these polyrhythmic folded pieces that would you know, move within the stereo field. That was like the programming bug in a sense. It's like, I knew that the intentions of the music, right? They come through the vibrations that you're putting out there. And then the system and everything you're processing it with these tools, the way it's being mediated is all a part of that as well. It's an instrument, the whole thing, not just the guitar, but also the processing system and the things that that plays through and the ways that comes into space. And so really it, it was part of this journey that's about process and intention and, and a feeling can come out of, you know, my heart, my hands, fingers to the guitar, to the strings, through these different materials and computers and start to then connect into space. And then that filters back <laughs> into people's ears and then into their hearts and then their feeling. And that's this fully connected system of vibration, of expression. Yeah, after that period, I, I really started focusing just more on the intention and letting the tools melt away. And then from that, really, this project, this nonprofit now, Envelop, emerged. Well, I think that's a great place to start asking you about this record, Ancient Future. Um, as part of the VMP anthology series on Ghostly International, subscribers are going to be receiving the vinyl of Ancient Future, which is a collaborative album from yourself and Ryuichi Sakamoto. Many people probably know Sakamoto from his work with Yellow Magic Orchestra and, of course, his soundtracks for movies like The Last Emperor and The Revenant. He's widely regarded as a pioneer of electronic music and modern classical, among many other things. Um, Ancient Future is actually the second record that you made with Ryuchi, the first one being Ocean Fire, uh, which came out in 2007. I guess let's start at the beginning. How did you meet Ryuchi Sakamoto in the first place? I actually had only first been exposed to him by my friend uh, Keichi Sugimoto and uh, my friend Tetsuro, who are in Tokyo. So myself and Taylor Dupree were on tour in Japan and Sakamoto had reached out to Taylor to do a remix and they were educating us on how big of a deal Sakamoto was out there. I mean, they couldn't believe it that Sakamoto had gotten in touch uh, with Taylor. And, you know, I just, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I remember, you know, like the Last Emperor soundtrack and stuff. And I was like, well, that's really cool. And just didn't really think about it much after that. And then I got an email from Sakamoto and he was like, hey, I love your music. Would love to, uh, yeah, meet up when you're in, um, when you're in New York, I see you're playing a show soon. I, this is around 2006. I believe it was right about the time that Surf Boundaries came out. So I went to New York and, you know, he's telling me directions of how to go over to his place. It's in the West Village. And he's like, hey, you have all your gear with you, right? I was like, yeah, definitely, you know, I'm going to be I got sound checked later tonight, like around like seven or something. He's like, well, if you want, you know, bring all your gear over here first and maybe we can, you know, improvise in the studio. 
And I'm like, hell yeah, like, <laughs> absolutely. So packed up everything, went over there to the West Village. And it was like, you know, there was like three assistants like ready to record stuff. And I was like, oh, damn, it's on. Like, <laughs> let's do this. And so we sat down. He made this incredible Dragon Ball tea. And we just went into a zone for about four hours. And it was this like subterranean, um, subconscious, lucid, dreamlike flow of sound. We weren't even talking during the whole session. We were just making all of these sounds and textures and it was a dance. It felt like this movement of cosmic gases colliding into each other and creating new stars. And it was absolutely um, incredible to experience that. And when we got done with the session, he gave me like all the files and he was like, hey, you know, why don't you take this and see if you can make something out of it. So that became Ocean Fire. And, you know, we made it together and then I edited it. We had so much material that that was really the main challenge of that was finding the best parts and how they all work together. I knew I wanted to keep as much intact as I could because there was this really interesting kind of interplay happening between my guitar and the textures I was making and his different sounds. And he was playing this Max patch the whole time with like these different samples in it. He wasn't playing piano at all during Ocean Fire. And so I knew I wanted to keep these chunks, but it was finding them because there was so much material. It was an incredibly patient, deep process of listening into the sound. It's like, you know, you think you hear it, but like what's underneath even what you're hearing? What's underneath that? Like going deeper and deeper into these layers of texture and, and really a lot of atonal experimentation of these interesting you know, chord clusters and forms and uh, very gaseous type stuff. Soon after we finished Ocean Fire, Ocean Fire was like, what, 2007 came out on uh, Commons, and then 2008 it came out on 12K. And then later in that year, Sakamoto sent me a bunch of these piano recordings. And, you know, we were both really happy about the way Ocean Fire had gone. We were also really grateful of kind of the direction. The whole idea about it, it, like conceptually, it was all connected to the ocean and the title Ocean Fire came from this love of the oceans and, and really calling an alarm that the oceans are on fire. There was definitely huge red flags going up that like the oceans are becoming more acidic. We need to watch what we're doing. And then he sent me this other stuff and it was like these beautiful extended jazz chords and all this stuff. And he's like, you know, let's try something different here. He's like, I've got all these other recordings that I've made. He's like, let's make something out of this. And I could already tell where he was going with it, where it was maybe a little less heady um, in terms of, you know, the textural, technological stuff and maybe not the big concept. And just like exploring this idea of ambient jazz, you know, extended chords. And that's where ancient future emerged from. It's essentially an album that's an improvisation with his improvisation. So he gave me these recordings. And then in my studio, I played the recordings and improvised with them. And uh, yeah, Ancient Future is the result. So at what point did you begin to understand what the record was about or that you were going to call it 
ancient future. I mean, the track titles, they move from reticent reminiscence through I don't want to understand, and then eventually you get to levitation, releasing and completion, which seems to suggest like a life cycle or a processing of emotion. When did that come into play? We were never having to go back and talk about what needed to happen. We would just compare notes and it's like we were reading each other's minds. It was so graceful and effortless. And as we started to make the music, the music started to bubble up these you know, messages, these kind of like lessons of, um, of time and decay and rebirth and completion and just this, this timeless process of, of movement and growth and death and really, ultimately, the present moment, the simplicity of surrender and just the timelessness of being here. You've been making and playing music pretty much steadily since you got that first guitar at around 13 years old. What would you say is the through line in all of this work? What do you think are the things that you have been perpetually interested in exploring? In one word, love. For me, it all comes back to that. And I believe that music is an incredible language that can express love. Love in a, in a very physical way. You know, when you're listening to music with people, you don't know those people, but you know that they love something that you love. And that, that feels good. You know those people are okay. You know there's a connection. And when I'm making the music, I, f I always feel this deep responsibility to just do the very best I can to express what's in my heart. And then the second one is definitely the guitar. I have a deep, deep uh, love affair with the guitar. It's just such an incredible instrument. I mean, you can play it like a piano, you can play it like a horn, you can make noise with it, you can run it through computers and electronics to make it completely different. Uh, it's like an orchestra that you can travel with. It's just one of the most incredible things that's ever been invented in my opinion. Uh, it's just, it's just, it just blows me away. It gives me goosebumps just talking about it, you know, and just feeling the reverence I have for being on this planet, feeling the the hope I have for us to, you know, learn and, and grow and you know, do the best we can as a species to love each other and get through the challenges that we're at. I mean, that that you know that can be inspired through music, and that's why I'm making music is is just to create a space for people to maybe slow down a little bit and just a time to to relax and, and just chill out a little bit. It's like a hug or something. It's like a, a validation of like the challenges that we all go through. And it's, a, it's like a warm blanket, just like, hey, you know, not alone. We're here together and let's do the best we can.
I hope you're nice and relaxed, and you learned a lot about these two albums that you now have in your collection, Ancient Future and This Is For The White In Your Eyes. In our next and final episode, we're gonna be fast forwarding in the label's catalog and also zooming into Ghostly's future. That's all I can give away for now, but as always, feel free to listen to the next episode while unpacking your final two records in the Ghostly International VMP box set. This season of VMP Anthology is produced and hosted by me, Vivian Host. Our engineer is Ryan Woodhall. I'll talk to you soon.